0: This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Liedem, General Counsel at Biotech. and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Beloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, And Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who is calling in from London. On this episode, the third in season three of EAH, we are joined by Michael Persky, CEO of Quantrin AG. Quantron is based in Germany and is focused on delivering e-mobility solutions for transportation companies, municipal vehicles, passenger transportation, and airports. Quantran has embraced hydrogen fuel cell vehicles as a central part of its vehicle lineup, and we are honored to have Michael with us today to talk us through his vision for the future of e-mobility. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at at about hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, guys, I've got the customary blank screen from Chris Jackson on my monitor, and I can see Patrick's lovely smiling face. So I'm going to start with Patrick. Patrick, how are things? What's been going on?
1: Yeah, not, not a huge amount. It's, as everybody knows, it's just wild and wonderful right now, every, every, all sorts of announcements. Uh, I think we've had a kind of an IEA report uh, come out, a few other things. And uh, I think we're hitting a lot of news and noises uh, in advance of COP. And, and I think there was obviously the the Earthshot efforts and a few uh, a few companies in the,
2: the hydrogen space doing well in that one. Including our friends Inapta. Um, I think, yeah. uh, in fact, the only one for we missed from the list, Patrick, was River Simple because Inapta and Zero Avia were both on the show.
1: There we are. So, so obviously, we've one more podcast
2: episode
0: to do. At least, we've got at least one more. <laughs> at least one more.
2: <laughs> well, wow. the Team River symbol are pretty good. We had some of their Raza cars at our launch of the Welsh uh, protein Wales uh, office.
0: Excellent. Well, Patrick completely dodged my question about how he's doing personally, but that's okay. Well, this is a hydrogen podcast, technically. So, Chris, how are you doing? How
2: are things in London? I'm actually doing pretty well. London's had miraculously good weather. I think we're all a bit perplexed as to what is going to happen for COP. It seems as though we are three weeks away and almost nothing is planned, which is very surreal. So it's all, um, I don't know, all a little bit quiet in some ways. It seems like everyone's quite distracted. And then everyone is losing their minds over gas prices over here, which I guess is not the same conversation you're having in the States. Other Americans that are making lots of money off natural gas include CF Fertilisers, which for listeners who've never heard of them is a massive fertilizer uh, company listed in the States. And they've got two sites in the UK and uh, buried in the news uh, last month was that the British government paid 30 million pounds of price support, according to the Financial Times, for one month to keep them running because they supply 60% of the UK's CO2. So if you turned them off and they were threatened to turn them off, We literally would not have had enough CO2 for the food industry and half the food industry and packaging industry had three days of supply on notice before they bailed them out, um, which is absolutely staggering. And to reframe it, they're now providing these guys price support to the end of January. So it is not inconceivable that the government will spend close to 100 million pounds over six months to continue to support an ammonia producer to use natural gas. And that is half, almost half of the total net zero hydrogen fund in the UK of 240 million pounds. So if you want to talk about climate change and the energy transition, that is probably the most interesting thing going on in the UK at the moment is just how insane the gas prices are and how ridiculous our government strategy and response has been to it. It is unreal. And uh, that's probably the reason why there's nothing going on in the run up to COP because everyone is losing their minds over gas prices to give you an idea of this um the uk at the moment some of the spot prices for natural gas are working out at something like what was the last number we looked at over 16p a kilowatt hour over four pounds a kilo of hydrogen equivalent and average at the moment is above two pounds fifty so it's averaging above 7p a kilowatt hour at the moment out monthly You know, literally green hydrogen in several parts of the UK, if you were using it for heating for industry straight from an electrolyzer into a process, is 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 at parity with um, with natural gas, which is completely crazy. And that's where we are on the market today. So yeah, onwards and upwards. (laughs) Yeah,
1: look, it's 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 quite a spike. It's surged towards fifty dollars an MMBTU, right? Like this is uh, this is the volatility in the market.
2: Please, dear God, don't get me into BTUs. It's just a whole nother thing. The whole hydrogen industry calculation of of BTU versus kilos versus, um, what were the other ones, versus liters someone wanted the other day. I mean, it's just, yeah.
0: yeah. Mega joules.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't
0: don't want to point any fingers here, but BTU is British uh, thermal units, Chris. So, you know, sometimes we have to look in the mirror here.
2: I don't own up to all of my country's failings and I'm quite happy to give that one <laughs> a fair. clear pass. Um <laughs> That's fair. But uh, yeah, you're right. I should be I should be more bullish. I should be more bullish and all of which is just to say no, it's actually a very uh, it's a very interesting time for climate in the UK. There's a lot of stuff going on. I think actually is making the whole energy transition conversation super interesting. And a final one before you tell me to shut up, which you should do. Uh, If you haven't seen, Harvard Business Review had a really cool short piece on carbon pricing. And the guy writing the piece, a few people sharing it on LinkedIn, made the point that if every single part of industry paid the $100 a ton carbon price today, that would be the equivalent of 5% of GDP. And actually the crazy number was that if ExxonMobil had to pay that on their scope one, two, and three emissions, they'd already be bankrupt, which I thought was quite sobering food for thought.
0: That is uh, undeniably a fun set of statistics, Chris. I I can't can't fault you there.
2: Well, I mean, because his point was, and we don't talk about it enough on the show, but uh, hopefully we will with one of our guests later this year, is actually once you look at the cost of carbon and actually apply that properly – at the 2030 point, across all four submissions, you actually realise that a huge number of businesses—they're just their business model and their process—is not viable environmentally, or indeed commercially viable at that point. On that bombshell. And onto hydrogen.
0: <laughs> on that note, let's talk about some uh, future viable uh, business models and introduce uh, who will be on the show with us today. Chris, I believe that falls to you this
2: time around. Uh, sure. Okay. For this week, we are delighted to have Michael Persky, who is the CEO of Quantron. Guantrin is a German-based zero-emission vehicle supplier. I think that's probably the best terminology for them. They do both fuel cell and battery electric, and they do a hybrid of uh, retrofitted vehicles and also, I believe, new vehicle designs as well but almost exclusively commercial vehicles. And it's an interesting one because Michael is relatively new into the job as CEO, but was a founding investor of Quantron. And so has some really interesting perspectives coming from being an investor first as an angel investor and then becoming part of the management team. And and Michael has a fascinating background as well in the automotive space, working with a number of massive companies, including Audi, where I think he was involved in the e-tron program. But I'm sure he'll give us some more details when we get him on the show.
0: Awesome. Well, let's see if we can get him on the line.
2: Michael, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us on the Everything About Hygiene show. Maybe just to start us off, can you introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about who you are and who Quantron are?
3: Yeah, my name is Michael Persky. I'm uh, the CEO and member of the management board of Quantron AG in Germany, uh, just very close to Munich. We are basically a zero emission transportation solution company. We actually started with um, refitment or repowering of existing vehicles, buses, and trucks on the electric side. As we speak, I joined the company. We are becoming, well, I call it a new OEM. So we are not only refitting and repowering existing vehicles, but we also are moving to the point where we will have our own branded vehicles. And we will be technology agnostic. That means we will have vehicles with electric drivetrain for short and medium haul. And we look at hydrogen drivetrains for long hauling and for buses. We have just signed a strategic partnership agreement with Bala Power from Canada. Myself, I've been in the zero emission space for probably the last 10 years. Uh, Ranging from uh, being responsible for the Audi e-tron go-to-market strategy for the e-tron brand of Audi, which is a zero emission electric brand. And uh, afterwards, I've been um, starting and founding CEO of Automobile E-Pininfarina, which is the first electric uh, luxury brand in that space, Um, being famous now for launching the Batista. And after I left that uh, company after three years, I was the CEO of an investment fund focusing on zero-emission mobility uh, investments, which include companies like Rimac from Croatia or Formula E, and that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm myself an an, um, angel investor in that space, and I joined Quantron initially as an investor, and since 1st of September... I'm the CEO and helping the founder to take the company to a global level and developing our own OEM brand.
2: Stunned silence after the <laughs> after that introduction.
0: Yeah, I might even I might even jump in there, uh, Patrick, if you don't mind. Go ahead, Michael. Those uh, some of those uh, vehicles that you mentioned are one might call very high performance vehicles. Where does Quantron into that space are you guys looking at, at a high performance segment or are you looking at a more more standard uh, vehicle drivetrain
3: pretty much i think I, I really did a paradigm shift uh, looking at a super luxury high performance ev um, game and now shifting to to buses and trucks no we as Quantron don't have the ambition to go in anything which is passenger cars or high performance my or our focus is very clearly we want to make an impact on the global CO2 emissions, and we believe that trucks and buses, especially heavy trucks, garbage collector trucks, or passenger um, public buses, a huge CO2 footprint. Especially because we drive a lot of miles per per uh, per year, so the um, emissions are huge. Which you can save when you go zero emission, and that's our focus. So it's a paradigm shift, and uh, having been in the trade in this specific trade for a while now, I'm actually surprised how hard we push passenger cars uh, and electrification of passenger cars and in a way how we have neglected the sector which probably benefits the most from zero emission technologies and specifically hydrogen um, for so long and and that that sector is still in a very initial stage if you compare it to to something where Tesla started 15 years ago on a passenger car side so no we don't have that ambition but at the same time we think that the proportional impact of what we do can be much much higher on a global CO2 footprint reduction than actually building the vehicles I was building before in my earlier job
1: so so, so, Michael, maybe maybe as a follow on from that, the obvious question to ask is is, is why
3: hydrogen and, and and why this approach? Well, I mean, I think um, recently you see in the news and in the media like a polarizing discussion, which is obvious. It's electric or hydrogen. I think that's that's a very short sighted discussion. I think we need to uh, look at the application level. We need to look at what are you really using a vehicle or, or even a boat, a ship or a train for, how long you go, what kind of um, charging infrastructure you have, what kind of battery weight do you want to carry along and and what is your kind of key priority and i think we probably all agree that short distance transportation in inner cities for small and medium vehicles 50 to 100 maybe 150 kilometers a day electric is probably for the time being the best technology we can find because you need a medium, decent sized battery pack, charging infrastructure is not a key and and driving uh, distance is easily doable with a reasonably sized, not too expensive, not too heavy battery pack. If you do the same equation and you want to run a 500, 800 kilometers or 500 miles transportation with a heavy truck fully loaded, then I think I personally believe, and maybe I might have a different opinion than Elon Musk, it doesn't make sense to carry around 6, 8, 10 tons of battery cells because, it's first of all, it's a lot of weight. So, but again, eats into the efficiency of the vehicle. It goes against your payload. Uh, in Europe, we have very, very strict requirements on the total size of a vehicle and the total maximum weight. So it directly destructs. And even if you believe in hypercharging, which for sure is a way in the future, and you look at any highway globally, whether it's in the US or in Europe, Europe's even more congested, and you have 60 trucks all wanting to hypercharge electric, you also come to a capacity end of, of any electrical grid. So we have a certain limiting factors on the electric side, which probably currently hydrogen could be an alternative solution. And when we talk about hydrogen, for me, it's very important when you say the premises is we talk about green hydrogen. I think blue, brown, whatever color, purple hydrogen would not be my priority. If we really want to reduce CO2 emissions, we have to talk about green hydrogen. But for for, for companies like Amazon, FedEx, UPS, if they want to really apply their ESG rating, improve their ESG grades, reduce their CO2 emissions, then I think short, medium term, electric, long range trucks are either not existing or come to a lot of limitations. And that's where clearly I see hydrogen is a very good solution right now.
0: And maybe, uh, Michael, if we could ask you to expand on that. I know you've touched on this and I know it's a, it's a theme that you know I'm sure you are asked many times, asked about uh, pretty frequently. But could you expand on what uh, what you and Quanron see as the factors that determine whether a battery or a fuel cell is best for a commercial vehicle and then why you know why hydrogen mm-hmm. fills that gap or solves that problem?
3: Yeah, so I think again, we have to talk about hydrogen being at a point where electric mobility was probably ten to fifteen years ago. So I think what we see is a strategic vision where hydrogen will lead us. And not all the criteria or all the benefits of, of hydrogen today are completely already on the table and ready and developed. But we see that, first of all, hydrogen is something you can fuel faster. You, it's a liquid. It has its limitation in regards of cooling and transportation and production, but it's a liquid which can be charged at a, as a reasonable speed. It is something which in, in many parts of the world, not everywhere, you can produce in the country. Now, if you have solar power, wind parks, or other things, or even you can base it, uh, produce it based on a methanol process, you can produce this in, in, a, in a country. So you become also a little bit less dependent on, on the global oil markets. It is, as a green hydrogen, it's 100% CO2 free. So it has a lot of input benefits, first of all. Secondly, on the application level, we talk to our clients. Our clients are logistic. Um, companies and brands and they have external threats and one of the external threats is we have to fulfill the green deal. The second is we have to pay for CO2 emissions. The third threat is we have to do ESG ratings. And then we look at what hardware is available to solve the problems and that's where, like you said, what question do we ask? And then you say, what is the purpose of your transportation? If we get an Excel table, and in the Excel table, they say, look, we need to transport 15, 20, 25 tons. We need to, on average, go 500 to 600 kilometers a day or 500 miles a day. And we have long haul, uh, heavy weight, and, and, and. Then we say, okay, guys, there's probably right now only one solution. You have to go with a hydrogen solution because the batteries... Which we have currently in the market, and um, we talk about LFP or NMC batteries um, are first of all expensive, they are heavy, and we need to look at your cycle times. And as long as we don't really have hyper charging available, where we talk about eight hundred to twelve hundred kilowatt uh, charging capacity, uh, um, then and if you want to do your your, your cycle times. Then we very quickly come to a solution and say, okay, for this application, for this kind of transport, for this kind of need, hydrogen is the right thing. If you operate Tipper trucks uh, 80 kilometers a day with reasonable grading and you have point to point charging infrastructure and downtimes of half an hour, an hour per stop, then they say, okay, that could make sense to stay on electric. Because, of course, hydrogen today, Uh, And I talk hydrogen always in a combination with an electric drivetrain. I don't talk about that you take an old engine and you fuel it with hydrogen and do some technical adaptation. I say we have an electric drivetrain with an electric hydrogen combination. So a hybrid. We see that this is always more expensive, but it has its benefits based on really the transportation profile of a client. And, and that's what we see in Europe specifically, we're willingness of brands also to be innovators and we're willingness of brands to say, look, I think I can also charge some of the CO2 benefits to my clients or my clients expect me to be green. I mean, we all know the picture of Cristiano Ronaldo putting the Coke bottle away at the, at the cha- World Champ- or European Championship and the share price of Coke dropping. There's a whole generation out there which is called the generation Greta Thunberg. If Coke, McDonald's, Unilever, Nestle are perceived as sturdy brands because of a diesel transportation value chain um, or supply chain, then these brands are become less cost conscious and more image conscious. So I think you have to throw it all in in and then you arrive with a client at as an attribute list of priorities, what he wants to resolve to go green or zero emission. And that profile will result in what finally is the right solution for him. So of course there are objective factors, there are financial factors, there are image factors. The logistic factors, infrastructure factors, and, and 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 load and cycle times, and that arrives at a profile where then we recommend what what we would recommend as the right solution.
2: And Michael, I mean, thank you for going through that. I, I'm sure that you know. I think it's always the danger we have when we get a guest on the show is that there's almost too many questions that we want to ask them. Um, so I'm going to try and maybe pick up on some of the more obvious ones that you've you've flagged. The first question that really sort of jumped out at me was your observation that when asked why hydrogen, you went straight to refueling you know, you talked immediately about sort of the convenience of speed and around the challenges of the infrastructure for battery electric. Maybe you can talk a little bit to, you know, the experience you've had with Quantron and Quantrons and experience on that infrastructure challenge for both battery electric and for hydrogen. Good, yeah. Because you're quite unique in being a business that actually does provide both solutions to customers. And I think for listeners who aren't familiar with that, you know, there are not many businesses that do hybrid battery electric and fuel
3: cell electric options. So maybe you can kind of talk a little bit. And we do new and used, so we do refitment and new. So we have we're playing actually in four different quadrants. Normally, most companies play in one quadrant only. Well, exactly, which I think is really interesting. So maybe
2: you could talk a little bit through your experience about you know what the challenges you've seen are on the battery electric charging side, and what challenges you've seen on the hydrogen side. Uh, it'd be really interesting to get your perspective.
3: I mean, first of all. Um, I'm speaking from a European perspective with, let's say, having the core European markets in mind plus the early moving markets. And that means already we're very, very complex in Europe. You know, you have very early movers on zero emission transportation solutions like Norway, where there are no taxes on passenger cars. There is a wide availability of charging network for passenger cars where tax benefits and there's a firm belief on the entire nation to go green. So it's 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 a given. I think Norway is a given they move with the ferries, they move with everything they have green, whether it's hydrogen or electric. You have markets like Switzerland where you pay one Swiss franc per kilometer as a transportation company uh, if you are not zero emission. If you have a zero emission vehicle, uh, already about one Swiss franc per kilometer is gone. So every market has first and foremost different criterias, different backgrounds. So when we talk about what is the ideal solution we have to apply a kind of an 80 20 we have to take a calculated risk and say we're not a daimler we don't produce 204 variants of a, of a mercedes-benz sprinter we are and we will always be kind of i wouldn't say niche player but a focused player so when rivian entered the deal with amazon it was exactly about building one single delivery van so we believe that electric and hydrogen will coexist. Electric is ahead when it comes to average charging infrastructure, up to 50 to 100 kilowatt hours for passenger cars. This is where Europe is good. And this is where I say for short, medium, tr- um, up to 200 kilometers travel, up to 3.5 tons. This is where we see the market is very solid across the northern and central parts of Europe. Southern part of Europe is a little bit lagging behind, like Italy and some other markets. Um, where we see differences, and that's why we also have to take it into account, is the pricing on electricity. So we also even have to talk to energy companies. But our general strategic assessment is electrification is where we want to have one foot in the door on new as well as on refitment. And why refitment with electric makes sense? Well, you have a lot of industrial goods, like take a Kobos 3000 airport bus. That thing lasts 30, 40 years, uh, but it's a diesel. So does it make sense to refit it? Yeah, because the asset is still very valuable and the coach build, and it's it's a very expensive industrial piece of equipment. This is where we say it makes sense even to think about refitment. So we have a complex business model because we want to be a unique player. And unique player means we're a little bit more complex than, let's say, the average spec listed U.S. company who goes in one segment, you know, has a PowerPoint and CGI presentation and then gets billions of market valuation. We're a very grounded German company with 138 years of family history of being in the transportation sector. That makes us more, let's say, related to our roots, to be engineering driven, to be craftsmanship driven and to deliver engineering solutions. And then we take the market challenge and say, how can we be a change agent to zero emission transportation solution and deliver new solutions where we believe the market has no solution yet, which is the refitment of a new MAN truck and make it electric. Uh, It's refitting a Cobos 3000 airport bus electric. And it's looking at where is a niche in the market for hydrogen transportation solutions where the large OEMs come in 24, 25, 26. And we have clients talk to us and say, we need something in 22, 23. So we're very customer centric. We have a lot of technology expertise. And then we try to apply a scalable business model with a limited portfolio but smart enough and niche enough that we have our specific niches and people who don't know that we are for example the key supplier to to IKEA in Central Europe we supplied 50 IKEA uh, vehicles which are based on an Ivico daily electro refitted by us uh, a unique product in the market and IKEA won just an, an environmental prize in Austria with going completely electric with a new IKEA hub, uh, green emission hub in, in Vienna so that was a solution born out of a client relationship and with request and then we came with a solution uh, which we want to scale. so in a nutshell what drives us and what drives our decisions is always trying to understand technology, market, and customer requirements, and then coming first with a maybe more targeted customer solution, and then being able to scale it up to become a standard offering.
0: And Michael, I'm wondering if I could follow up there and see if you if you could give us a little bit of color around which markets, and I mean, either uh, geographically, you know, where you are getting the most inquiries for hydrogen vehicles from, and we can we can expand that onto the battery side, but.
3: I'm Obviously, for the purposes of this show, <laughs> the
0: hydrogen—the hydrogen, the hydrogen question—is is, is kind of key. So, yeah, I'd be curious to know where you're getting the most interest.
3: So, of course, our roots are initially strongly um, DACH region focused. So, we are here in the center of Germany. We're very close to the Austrian and the Swiss border. So, this is where we initially started our business model. Before I came on board as an investor, and that was we had a very strong regional base, and then with clients we expanded. And so today we talked to a lot of companies in Scandinavia, logically, because of the uh, IKEA reference from our battery electric uh, initiative, we see that, of course, Scandinavia is leading in some aspects around hydrogen, especially Norway uh, and Sweden, because also they're very environmental conscious, also the companies there. We see increasing demand on the Benelux, especially Holland, because, again, Holland started to be very aggressive and forward-thinking on electric vehicles. Electric, they have a certain level of penetration. You have huge logistic companies at the port of Amsterdam and the port of Rotterdam who also want to go medium and long distance. So, again, there we get more demand demand. Recently, we have got more interest, especially from Portugal. Portugal seems to be also one of the regions in Europe who is going more aggressive into hydrogen, especially because they have a lot of wind and solar energy. Um, so, And also they're using some of the European funds to, to spur innovation in that field. So I wouldn't say that you can say there is a complete pattern, but you see probably it's a pattern on the combination of environmental consciousness of innovativeness of the specific country and government Also, if there's a green member uh, in the parliament who kind of is more environmental friendly from the legislation, you see some countries being smart enough to see the green deal as an opportunity to get money from the European Commission and invest in green infrastructure and products. So I wouldn't say that there is one pattern, but I think clearly Germany wants to become one of the leaders in the hydrogen transformation in Europe. And there's a lot of government money also going into hydrogen, incentivizing hydrogen. So I think... For sure, Germany will be one of the hubs. Scandinavia for sure will follow up. Benelux maybe... Portugal, on a much smaller basis, um, we feel less tension or traction right now still in France, Italy, or Spain at the moment. And UK, <laughs> we have only one you know, finger in the pie to, to analyze what's happening in the UK, because post-Brexit, it becomes more difficult to do business in the UK, besides that they have a steering wheel on the wrong side of the vehicle. Yeah, I'm sorry, we can't do much about the steering <laughs> wheel. Um. <laughs> UK has, of course, also the benefit that you have a lot of opportunities on wind and hydropower. And I mean, it goes without saying, you have a couple of really big energy companies who have to also do something by themselves to become greener. And there's Royal Royal Dutch Shell, uh, which is partly Dutch and partly British. And then you have BP. And I think also the energy companies, the old energy companies testing the waters with wind and solar. But I think what is closer to them in regards of the industrial business model is, of course, also to understand if and how they can play a role in, in hydrogen. And I think uh, the UK doesn't want to miss out on that and doesn't want to leave a pie to, to the Germans or the French or the Scandinavians. So I think, But this is a market we haven't touched deeply and opportunities for us as a, as a company. We are monitoring it. We're still looking at finding the right ally in the game to, to enter the UK with a, with a local partner, maybe.
1: Michael, may, maybe a bit more of a, a technical question, but but given that we're we're talking about you know different sizes, weights of vehicles, we're talking about different kind of use cases depending on you know the, the trucking versus the the delivery versus the bus. You know, one of the prominent kind of questions that's come out, particularly in the last last year, I would say, is is the conversation between choosing uh, you know liquefied hydrogen versus uh, you know kind of uh, compressed hydrogen. Just wondering, have you have you a sense of, of you know which tool is is better for the use cases you're looking at, or are you you know are you seeing that same division of choice uh, between the two that you you've kind of uh, illustrated with the uh, the EV versus uh, fuel cell market and that kind of mixed middle
3: maybe? I think we're in the middle of the Exploration. I wouldn't say that I'm standing up there on stage like one of the board members of Daimler and saying this or this is right or wrong. Because we don't know. Nobody knows what is the right choice. I think you need to explore both of them. And there might be even different answers for different countries or different regions or different use cases because bottom line, we will not necessarily be an, an hydrogen producer. We might have strategic partnerships, but we're not a hydrogen producer. So um, we know what we want to achieve. It's a maximum range. So we want to work with 700 bar technology uh, so you get the maximum uh, amount of kg hydrogen into a tank. Right now, if you ask me today, Probably I might slightly favor liquid hydrogen, but that's my personal choice. I'm not a hardcore engineer. But uh, as we speak, we're just sitting together with our partner, Bala Power, and we're discussing that over and over again. And we have concluded that for Europe and for the U.S., we might not come to the same conclusion. So if you're in both markets, you might have different priorities, drivers, attributes or parameters. So... um, I wouldn't make today, I'm too new in the hydrogen game, but I would allow myself to have already a final opinion.
2: So, I mean, there are a million things we can ask you and something we really wanted to go into a little bit was actually the business itself, because many people might not have heard of Quantron. I think in Europe, you guys are, are well known, but perhaps less well known outside. And, and the question we always get from our listeners is kind of, how are these businesses being financed? You know, <laughs> um, people are obviously very familiar with with businesses that are financed via the back route for good and for ill. You know, I don't believe that Quantum is a listed business. No. Nope. So, could you tell us a little bit about how you've been financed to date, and I guess some of your plans for financing in the future.
3: Yes, a good, very sensitive question. No, we are not a spec listed company yet, and I myself have been part of a of multiple, uh, at least two podcasts where I made a very rigorous assessment about the quality of very recent spec listings. I think uh, we are more, I would call it conservative German. Uh, so the initial phase was financed more or less from own equity and uh, yeah, seed funding, friends and family, and a little bit of corporate money from the, the mother company, which this is a spin-off because it's a fifth-generation entrepreneur company, uh, which comes from the combustion engine truck business. So I entered in the next seed round, which was in March, uh, where we uh, at a valuation of $50 million. we got on board close to $10 million investment to basically spur forward the retrofitment business and develop the first ideas about our own products we have one invested company who's a Hong Kong listed EV bus bus company with production sites in, in China, but listed in Bermuda and on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. They provide us a, a scalable production base of up to 15,000 units in China. We have another investor who's on board who is a hydrogen fund based out of Singapore, only investing into hydrogen technologies. I came on board as a, let's say, angel investor, um, operating investor. Uh, we are now going to next round which is a convertible loan, which we issued or which we started around. We're 60% subscribed. We have most of our initial investors going along and we have two new investors on board uh, based on a 250000000 million pre-money valuation for the convertible loan. So we have a 5x in the last six months. This is still based on a conservative European Valuation and do we want to go to the stock market? Yes, definitely. Do we want to go to the German stock market? Maybe, but maybe not because valuations are not as exciting as the US market. Do we want to do a spec? It's not necessarily our prime route, not because I don't like specs per se, but I think that. Recent spec listings, and I think we can name some like Lordstown or Nicola, have not necessarily created a very positive image for for spec listings. Um, And if you look at the peak of their valuation and where they are now, a lot of specs are trading at 20, 30% of their peak. Um, So spec has got a little bit of a negative image, which I'm not saying that all spec listings are negative, but I think it's always the rotten apples who spoil the image. And therefore, would we look at a spec, maybe with the right promoters, with a solid business case and being close to a break-even scenario? Yes. That could be an option. Otherwise, you can also just do a regular listing. And we're not in a, in a hurry to list them in the next 6 or 12 months because we have 100 million cash burn per month. We have a very healthy, low-capex, smart money approach. And so also a regular listing is possible. Or you do a merge or you do a reverse merge or, or you just have a strategic investor. I think we're very open to talk to the right companies. And uh, right companies for us are not OEMs because they would limit our growth. We would also, uh, we don't want hyper aggressive PEs. We would talk maybe to, to the right funds who have experience with sustainability and large family offices who want to be exposed really to the center of, of, of sustainability. We've got a very good ESG rating. We're very, very sustainable from the ESG rating we got from, an list, uh, from a serious agency. And we have very interesting products in our pipeline with very interesting strategic technology partners. Um, but we're not pitching ourselves right now very loud. I believe in under-promise and over-deliver, because over time, this is what the markets will give you credit for once you get on the global radar screen. I hope that answers most of your questions all around that topic.
0: Well, Michael, we do want to be conscious of your time. And I know Chris is going to jump in here because he can barely control himself. He's so excited about uh, asking a a final question for you. But I guess, guys, we can count out. uh, We've now torpedoed our Nicola and our Lordstown listeners. But, you know, that's all right, Michael. (laughs) It was worth it.
3: No, I mean, not, see, I think there are also amazing people working for these companies, but I think uh, <laughs> it's it's always if if you're too over aggressive at the front of his company and promise way too much I and mean, then you cannot deliver, you know, the U- US investors are courageous, but also the US lawyers are very yeah, very very stingy on these things and then they pick up and I know a gentleman who runs a, a small company called Hindenburg Research <laughs> and there are also short sellers out there and you know the market is, is the market is today more aware of what's happening out there and i think it's just important that uh, you know what you'd say tomorrow as uh, today uh tomorrow somebody will remember and then some people will make you accountable for what you said there have been times where people didn't care you know the sky is the limit but people also burn their fingers and Obviously, I still remember the spec mania we see now, and the EV sector is just one of them. It does still remind me a little bit of a dot-com bubble between 98 and 2001 and 2006, 7, 8, uh, where also I, I personally bought some shares on a company called com and they had a URL and that's it and people were just, was just like going to the casino um, mm-hmm. uh, or there's a company called Pacific Cyber Century, Century Works uh, of his son of Li Ka-Shing and he launched a couple of URLs and he bought Hong Kong Telecom and his companies were worth nothing and he bought a company who had a couple of billions of cash in, in the bank so we always had these call it gold digger times and but then the the guys who survive are normally the ones who have substance right
2: well no i mean I, I don't disagree at all and i mean i think i'm sure that our listeners are going to be just as um gutted as i am that uh, there's only one more question that i get to ask uh in this slot michael so i'm um, fairly certain that uh we will be clamoring to have you back on the show next year It is very unusual and really nice, actually, to hear someone coming on the show who is saying, look, you know, we're not trying to gun for the largest possible valuation we can as fast as we can, and we want to be more strategic and we want to make sure that we can deliver and we can execute. Given the level of interest that is out there um, and given people's general aversion to debt, and you, you referred to being a, a typical German, I think was your turn of phrase earlier, Michael. Um, why a convertible loan as a structure? I think it's just something that um, is quite unusual. I've heard a few people talk about them, but, you know, given the level of financing in the market at the moment, and given the you have an interest.
3: No, even, even even Rivian in the second or third round did a convertible loan. Um, not everybody might know about it, but they did. So why a convertible loan? Because it's an asset class, which for some investors easier to position. You have a very nice upside because we we give you a glass ceiling at 250. And if, um, or post money 270, and, and if the next round, you know, uh, we have 500, your strike is in, you're sealed at 250 and already you have an upside. So we found it easy to position among existing investors. We found it easy to sell to new investors because as an asset class, it's good. You have you certain more conservative investors say, look, I already get an interest rate. I have an upside potential. Um, so for us, it was we didn't take an investment banker i mean it was basically me the founders and the existing investors and say what do we do next and we also didn't want to dilute too fast too much so we said okay this is an interesting alternative i myself invested as an angel investor in a couple of convertible loans with some other startups so i knew the tool i knew how to position it how to sell it we have maybe one investor where do where we convert his equity of a kind into the proportion of a convertible loan. So it gave us a lot of flexibility of, you know, position it. And, you know, we've, within three, four weeks, I had like a 60, 65% sign on to the product. And well, when you have 65% signed on, basically when you float the idea and people say, yeah, it makes sense. I'm happy to assign the term sheet, you know, and I didn't need to go any further. That's, it was a very pragmatic um, approach.
0: Well, Michael, we are disappointed to say that uh, the time uh, I think for today has come to a close. But uh, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time, and we really appreciate you coming on the show. I think that I think I speak for all of us when I say it's absolutely fantastic conversation. So we're delighted that you made the time to join us.
3: I'm convinced that hydrogen has a place to be, and we are, I think, just reaching a certain interesting tipping point where it will go up exponential. That's why we have Bala Power as a partner, as a long-term strategic partner. And I think uh, 10, 15 years from now, everybody will ask themselves, why did people doubt hydrogen? You know, it's a no-brainer. It's just needed a little bit of the magic on the cooking recipe. And somebody needed to kill the chicken-egg problem and say, I don't build trucks until I have fueling. We have to say, I don't build fueling until I have an uptake, similar like Elon Musk 15 years ago. I think we have to move forward and be innovative because the planet is not waiting for us, you know. We need to change the paradigm shift on emissions and CO2 developments. And we've seen recently that uh, we spoiled our Earth already way too much in regards of taking out too much and giving back too little. I think we have to reverse that. And then green hydrogen is one of the very few magic recipes which definitely works.
2: And by the way, audience, we didn't script any of that. I mean we might, we may as well have done because I I think I was sort of listening to that going, My God, I need to tell my investors that pitch every time I finish. So whenever you use it, send me a freebie, okay?
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Such a pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you.
3: Thank you Michael.
0: This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. Biogas, Biotech's gas as a service option, provides customers with low cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Bayotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Bayotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit bayotech.us today to get low cost, low carbon hydrogen delivered on demand. Pretty dynamic uh, conversation there. Michael's quite a personality. Patrick, key takeaways, and when are you buying yourself some sort of Quantrin vehicle?
1: That's that's an interesting one. Am I, am I changing career? Um, Potentially, maybe. yeah. I'm just maybe. thinking, hedging your bets.
2: Always have a plan B. It is very lucrative to be an HGV driver in the UK right now, Patrick. I'm just saying.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I know that. I, I've learned I've learned all about that in the news. I think, I think there's a really interesting piece here, and, we, and we've talked about it in general around fuel cell versus battery as not being a competition really as a, so much as a compliment and i think uh quantron are the exact example of this right between having these variety of uh, commercial vehicles having uh, both technologies at play in, in different ways and, and designing dynamic systems and, and dealing with customer need right obviously different types of trucks right different weight bearing different sizing buses as well right and and that's a pretty, I think, compelling opportunity uh, in the mobility space to actually, you know, be dynamic about what needs to be delivered for the best case for the client and op- offering that optionality. Obviously, they partnered very recently with with Ballard. That's probably, you know, a company that that most of the folks listening to the to us today and to the episode will be aware of. But, you know, it, it kind of speaks to the point that they're quite a serious, uh, serious company and they're engaged in the fuel cell space and the hydrogen space pretty, pretty intensely. Obviously, interesting as well, you know, kind of the, the flexibility around or maybe not flexibility, but the interest between liquid versus gas. But obviously, you know, primarily looking at uh, gaseous hydrogen. I'm just hearing I'm just hearing a lot of the themes that we really are seeing as, as really strong opportunities come out. So I think it's a pretty exciting exciting company and and i think as chris flagged in the intro the uh the kind of experience that they they have in the team and kind of partnerships they're building are probably pretty good ones so i don't know chris what what do you
2: think i mean in terms of my side i think um The thing that was interesting to me, uh, which maybe is perhaps less surprising, was just them talking through um, the way they think about the business. And suddenly, um, you know, Michael, I think is very articulate talking about the value proposition. And they are quite um, unusual. I mean, 700 bar you talked about, um, focus on liquid is also quite interesting. Clearly there, you're kind of talking more about that longer range use case, which is something we've also seen from other German companies in the market. That's also the route that Daimler have gone down. Um, I'm a little surprised by that. It has to be said, because I think, um, you know, you would have thought that given a lot of the early vehicles and are discussing that they're often retrofits. And so retrofits tend to be less space optimized. And so adding additional storage um, or reconfiguring storage uh, is then actually less. uh, Sometimes you don't get as many benefits in a retrofit model. And I therefore would have thought they would have preferred the sort of shorter distance and gone for something simpler like 350 bar. But equally, it may be because they do do battery electric as well. And maybe that's the interesting nuance here is, you know, where you've got battery electric um, capabilities for commercial vehicles already within the company, you are making that much clearer distinction between use cases where you really need that value add from the range. Um, you know, versus the battery, and uh, and or even the weight in some instances as well. So I, I think that's something that if I would had more time, it would have been interesting to get into some of the technical elements of that. And and probably is actually a good question to talk to some of the Heisen guys and even some of the guys from companies like H2X about. You know how how they think about that split, about whether they should be you know battery electric or hydrogen, and, and if you're going to go to hydrogen, you know, does it make sense to do that 350 bar? I, I feel like that's a theme probably worth us coming back to at another point. Do you guys think
0: that the sort of platform agnostic approach where they're looking at both BEV and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, do you think that will be more prevalent as as the market evolves? Or do you think that it will be more common for these uh, manufacturers to just specialize?
1: I don't know what what you're seeing in the UK, Chris, but I, I think it's it's pretty broadly talked about now that this this market or these markets that, that are being focused on right now you know the kind of commercial vehicle ones are likely to, to have some level of split right and some of it's going to be down to range sensitivities or weight sensitivities some of it's going to be down to preference and availability of infrastructure it's going to be down to the dynamics I think I think the advantage here and I'll go back to it again and just say it like um, being that flexible for the consumer, and the consumer need and being able to adapt or size to match that need is is probably the valuable bit here. And being able to offer a quality product that can deal with whether it be, you know, kind of a, a cycle that allows for, you know, city limit charging and, and whatnot, or whether you're on a longer route and have a higher weight and then essentially will require a kind of longer duration solution like fuel cell technology. I, I think that's the flexibility. I think I, and I think that's the strength. But I think it changes market to market, and and that's also a value value
2: proposition as well. I think it's hard to get away from the fact that at the scale of hydrogen production we are at today, which is mostly pretty small scale, it has not yet made sense um, to build something brand new from scratch. And of course, even when you do that, the time to market is quite significant. And so for the startups that have been really aggressive, uh, they've kind of had to follow a dual track approach of doing retrofits while they try and get enough traction and interest that they can build something from scratch, whereas some of the bigger OEMs have had more time to build something genuinely from scratch. So you see a very different attitude from companies like um, Heizen or H2X, or even to some extent, companies like Symbio, uh, you know, the Michelin JV, uh, you know, th- their approach is just very different to how a Toyota or Hyundai has looked at this, or even indeed how a Dane has looked at it. So in a sense, Quantra's model makes sense for the type of business it is. And, you know, Michael talked also about the funding round. I mean, you know, he mentioned that the last funding round was 50 million. Uh, euro pre-money and they raised 10 million euros. So, you know, it's not people forget or especially people not in energy forget that you know that sort of quantum of money really doesn't get you necessarily especially far you know especially where PEM commercial fuel cell might still be depending on who you go to around you know a thousand euro a kilowatt so you know a hundred thousand euro f- um, for a hundred kilowatt system you know if you're doing that on a decent commercial size vehicle you know you could be spending 150 to 200,000 euro to get one vehicle into some sort of shape um, you know and if you're an early stage company that's a chunk of change out the door um, you know I think where will be interesting is you know when they step up to that next layer so you know Michael was talking about um, you know a much larger raise sort of a 250 million pre-money where they're looking at a large convertible loan you know What is the critical amount that you need to raise to justify investing in that R&D for that brand new optimized design? So you move away from the retrofits, you get the full system benefits of building from scratch and you can move forward. You know, in some senses, I suspect that's what Heisen did with SPAC. If you look at Gaussian, which is the French company, they've made a lot of in the uh, social media world out of their skateboard approach which is exactly trying to play on that theme so i guess that's where quantum will have to go um but for now it seems like the core cool competencies on the retrofits which you know is a hot area i mean in the uk you have Ulemco is the other company that does that um more on the internal combustion engine hydrogen combustion, but you know, fits nonetheless. And um, Hydra in Canada is the other one I can think of that also has that model.
1: I think maybe the question needs to go to you, Andrew. How do you kind of see this market and what are you hearing maybe in, in North America? Specifically?
0: My very layman's interpretation of this is, or, or read of the market is that, I mean, we are, to my knowledge, we're not seeing platform agnostic startups here in the US that are looking across the spectrum at BEVs, as well as uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. I mean, I think most companies in the U.S. are putting their eggs into one basket or the other. And obviously that corresponds to heavy duty vehicles versus uh, light duty vehicles. Right. So I think in the U.S., at least manufacturers, established manufacturers are going for battery electric on the light duty passenger side and you're seeing obviously some of the heavy duty or most of the heavy duty vehicle manufacturers putting all of their resources into into hydrogen and fuel cells right so i think we're the us at the moment it looks a lot like the dichotomy that we talk about on the show all the time, right, is that end use dictates, you know, whether which which technology is the right one. So I think we are pretty pretty standard. We don't see a lot of. I don't know that we have a, a quantron equivalent here in the U.S.
1: I think I think the other bit that will be quite interesting to see is about how as we start to have more available kind of competitors in both spaces, how the policy environment starts to evolve and whether whether a the risk of winner picking for different solutions or in different areas and regions and that's that's something that you know obviously it's important to build out and to develop but also you know there there's also a, a risk of uh not getting the market selection right when when you have uh technology preferences and, and like i think i think we've seen plenty of uh, recent efforts where policymakers have tried to stay away from doing that. But um, but it's always something that you kind of want to be aware of and conscious of as well to avoid asset stranding and stuff like that.
2: So, yeah, Andrew, I mean, the other thing, of course, that this interview really threw up for me is we don't see or we haven't seen a lot of German um, automotive startups really breaking through because obviously you have these massive giants within the German automotive space. But you know, at the same time, we've also seen a lot of the highly feted um, automotive startups in North America fail. Quite a few in China fail, and you know, a few in the UK that people have been talking about for a long time and struggling to raise. You know, what do you think about the long-term prospects of these sorts of businesses? What are the sort of bigger issues you're seeing?
0: Well, I would start off by saying that I probably am the wrong person to ask, but I will give you my best estimation. So, I think the biggest challenge that are looking at right is that these, for instance, let's let's use the German automotive sector. These are huge, massive, giant conglomerates. They move, they have a lot of resources, but they tend to move in a conservative, you know, they, they move from technology to technology and improvements rather slowly. It, you know, that's a that is a facet and a, a characteristic of the automotive manufacturing industry. They're pretty well entrenched. I think we see a lot of investor enthusiasm around startup vehicle manufacturers and say, you know, Rivian in the United States in the, in the uh, battery electric area, ton of funding, ton of investment, uh, huge upside potential. But part of that equation that you have to look at is I think it's because the large established companies are slow moving. Once they start to catch up, I think, and the, you know, the parallel here would be, You know, once Ford starts building and starts rolling out the F-150 electric models, can Rivian compete once Ford gets there, right? So uh, I think that's the challenge that these startup vehicle manufacturers in the zero emission vehicle space have to look up, look at, right, and have to uh, be very realistic about is that there's a lot of enthusiasm now and, and potentially a lot of funding. But once the, the established manufacturers catch up and get invested heavily into this space, will they be able to keep, will the startups be able to keep up in the long run? I'm not saying no, but I'm saying that is a challenge. That's something they have to be realistic about. So uh, that's kind of my take on it. I'm probably wrong, but that's how I would answer that one.
2: Taking, taking another way of looking at it, um, if you look at the automotive space, both ZeroAvia and Universal Hydrogen in some ways are retrofitting existing commercial craft. Um, and, you know, if you go and see the uh, the sites that they both have, you know, they're they're nice sites, they're in interesting places, but these aren't massive manufacturing hubs, right? And really the core of what they're kind of driving at is just getting that technical competence and design competence nailed down. But they're clearly not in a position to mass manufacture at scale, even though they're going to have something in the market, you know, is already test flown, but they'll have a main, you know, plane flying you know, hopefully later this year, maybe even start to next year. With their 19 seater. Contrast that with Boeing or Airbus that's saying 2035. But you know, we know they've got mass production lines. Is that maybe the way of thinking about this? That you know, the key for a lot of these smaller startups is going to be just proving that that core IP and that core technology works, and then you know, having to make that decision either to do a Tesla and invest in that capability yourself to mass manufacture at scale, or find a partner frankly and contract the manufacturing out to someone else once you've nailed that competency is that you know is that really another way of thinking about this
0: my initial reaction to that is that i think it's probably a good way of thinking it's an interesting way of looking at it probably the right way um, i think to compare it to the airline industry is maybe a, a, the aviation industry you know the life of a of a is the useful life of a, a passenger plane or a passenger jet is extraordinarily long, I think, compared to the average, you know, commercial or public transport bus or anything like that. At least I believe that to be the case, right? So I'm not sure that the the retrofitting I'm not sure is comparable there. But I, to answer the second part of your question, you yeah, know, I think that we're already seeing that, and I'll go back to Rivian as an example, uh, just because it's on one of on the top of my head. You know, they are already a huge chunk of their revenue and their investment uh is coming from manufacturing for you know they are going to be manufacturing the skateboard for the Ford F150 ironically uh but also that they are going to be manufacturing Amazon's delivery you know 100,000 Amazon delivery vans so there there's already sort of this uh partner Play that you're talking about, right? Even for a company that's as well capitalized as Rivian and potentially going to IPO at a huge, huge valuation. So I think you your instinct is probably right there. But again, you know, I'm probably not qualified to weigh in on it. But I think your instinct is on point. Patrick, do you have any thoughts on this?
1: Loads. Um, I think there's another another act or aspect here as well, which is that we're going to need to see either way, right? There's going to be an incumbent, an incumbent movement, uh, one way or another. And if incumbents do not move quick enough, uh, you may see some of these startups getting a, a kind of that critical threshold foothold in these markets. And they may, and, and there's another side to the Tesla play, for example, which is the infrastructure build. You know, they they are, and and you know, we've seen this with other companies. But at a certain point, you become potentially self-sustaining, and um, you know that's you know, not guaranteed for sure, but, but also if incumbents do not move quickly enough, uh, they might have a bigger problem than they think, right? And the, the strategy of acquisition or, or you know, disappears off the table by purely, you know, uh, the kind of the straightforward financing of these companies getting too big or too successful or, you know, um, simply not being willing to be taken over at a certain point, right? So there's a, there's a real risk in the market.
0: I, I do think my... Uh, negativity and uh, cynicism about about it was was the same thing that Tesla encountered in its early days, right? So, and it proved the proved the market wrong, so to speak, right? Uh, no, Tesla's still a young company. Who knows? But I, there's no one out there that can buy Tesla <laughs> at this point, right? So, it can be done, and I don't mean to sound negative. <laughs> I just think it, it, it is that challenge that these companies in the automotive space is just really hard to be a startup. And I think that's, uh, I think it's impressive. I admire the people who are taking it on. So, you know, it's really, go ahead. Oh,
1: to, dar- to jump on the Tesla example just as well, it's worth remembering that that at a, at a pretty critical juncture, Daimler invested a large amount of money in them and then sold off a few years later. Right. Um,
0: you know, there, the the U S government did something similar as well. Yeah.
1: There are, there are a lot of moments in automotive markets that, could be quite exciting and quite interesting. So uh,
2: (laughs) dare I I just put out there, though, I mean, is this maybe a Nikola type moment? I mean, you know, talking about sort of large automotive partners who are here at the time, bit of a rocky start, but, you know, still interesting space, well-capitalized, well-known brand, and they do appear to have product now that is still looking for the market. That's a sixty-four billion trillion whatever dollar question, right? Like,
1: who knows? And and certainly, I don't know if you get rockier starts than what's happened with with Nicola, uh, being so prominent and then having such trouble uh, pretty quickly afterwards. You know, uh, I think the jury's still out on on whether that comes back or whether it it kind of rises to where we kind of thought it might be. But yeah going to be an interesting journey. And, and similarly, if they can build out their infrastructure, uh, kind of, uh, plan, you know, we may have, we may be having a very, very different type of conversation about the entire sector that, that is being targeted. So yeah, we'll, we'll just have to wait, watch and see, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we've, we've highlighted one thing that, uh, you know, we've talked about investment from the private sector, but we highlighted one thing there, Patrick, uh, that we haven't talked about that much here, which is you know, what's the government's role here, and how can they? What are the what are the levers? You know, and again, some of this funding, you know, some of these levers will benefit the established automakers as well. But like, what are the levers that you guys you know think are most important for government to push on in the uh, transportation sector? And let's you know, we'll stick to to, to land transportation here. But uh, you know, is that is it is it important? You know, for to build a a zero emission vehicle uh, sector do you think the government's role is best is best uh, played by investing in the infrastructure or do you think it's direct investment or loans and what are the what are the most effective things that they can do in the in the automotive sector
1: i i, I would have i would have said that you know one of the key things that we've heard again and again in every sector is security and availability of supply and i'm having kind of a kind of a Confidence that you're not going to invest in something that is going to become unnecessary in a couple of years, five years, 10 years. Like, obviously, for mobility, lifespan's a little shorter than, you know, a steel facility, for example, right? So it's a different level of uh, question, but getting clear standards, clear guidance on transportation and production kind of standards, getting clear kind of guidance on You know whether it be um, tax credit access, right, for different things. There's there's a whole heap of this, Um, but there's also just a huge regulatory burden around moving hydrogen in many markets. It's still considered an industrial gas, right? So, some very very immediate barriers, and then there's some broader kind of how big does the market get barriers. Um, But yeah, maybe that's the high level uh, answer that says there's a lot more to unpack and discuss,
0: guys. Thanks a lot. This was a super interesting conversation. So uh, I guess next time we'll be seeing each other, we'll be uh cop. We'll be talking around the cop uh, week. So yeah,
2: that'll be exciting guys. Cop indeed. Indeed. Excellent. Looking forward to it. There is going to be no shortage of stuff to cover. <laughs>
0: And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to Michael Persky, CEO of Quantron AG, for joining us on the show today. It was a fantastic conversation. We can't wait to have him back on. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About
2: Hydrogen.